Welcome to the Enviro Health Podcast. Today we talk to Andrew Grieve on his research about communicating air pollution to the general public. So Andrew, what are you looking forward to in the future? In the not too distant future, i.e. next week, I'm really looking forward to going up to Scotland, uh, up to Edinburgh, see my folks, see my sister, um, offload my kids for a few days. <laughs> that, that's where you're from, right? Edinburgh, Scotland? Yeah. yeah, Beautiful place, I hear. Yeah. A, li- a little bit rainy, but very beautiful. So what has your career path been which led you to where you are right now? Um, I guess it's a mixture of deliberate and accidental. Okay. <laughs> um, so I had quite bad asthma when I was growing up. Um, I had a Ventolin in my pocket as far back as I can remember. All, you know, and I, I used to wake up during the night, every night, and need to take my inhaler in the middle of the night. So, um, yeah, so I... I grew up with with asthma, and, and that sort of made me made me think about breathing, made me think about breath, and 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 that there could be stuff in the air which affected your breathing, which you couldn't see. Um, so that that sort of got me interested in that. Um, and then I had a couple of really inspirational biology teachers at high school um, that were fantastic and then I, I i really got into biology and loved biology and how the human body works and um for a while i thought i might do biochemistry but that is so hard <laughs> it's so complicated <laughs> goodness um uh so then uh when i went to uni and i was choosing what to do i i chose environmental science as a sort of broad sort of broad you know like a bit of biology a bit bit of um atmospheric stuff uh you know so you got the biology the physics chemistry all of it yeah yeah (laughs) mixed together but um uh i had always loved sort of text tech stuff as well and i was always sort of getting gadgets and and uh you know keeping up with sort of the latest stuff that was on the scene so that that was always sort of a part of what i was doing as well um yeah so i sort of focused on air pollution towards the end of my studies at, at uni and then I, I did an extra year in in it uh, was this up in edinburgh sterling actually I, I i could have gone to edinburgh but i wanted to go to a different city <laughs> for, for uni uh and, and sterling is is go- lovely actually it's gorgeous uh, campus campus uni um so yeah so i sort of sort of wanted to do air pollution um i had this sort of IT side of things as well, sort of tech side of things. Um, <clears throat> and then I I was trying to get into air pollution in Edinburgh, um, managed to get an air, air pollution officer job at Edinburgh Council. Um, so that was sort of the deliberate part of it. Um, and then the accidental part of it was um, ending up in London. So I, I walked into um tesco metro on south clark street which people who know edinburgh will know (laughs) know where that is and i picked up a copy of the new scientist and flicked through to the back and there was an advert for an air pollution job in king's college which was sort of quite similar to what i was doing in the council um and i thought oh i I think i could do that um i'd never can i'd never really thought about 
living in London or ending up in London. Um, but I thought I'd give it a shot. Um, <clears throat> and I got an interview and then, and then got the job. And that was, that was 2000, 2005. So that was quite, quite a long time ago. Um, and so 16 I, years later, six, you're still here. Yeah. <laughs> Must have been a really good advert. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, it said something like, you're going to be working in our operations center in Waterloo. And the only thing I knew about Waterloo was that it had a train station. So mm -hmm. I, I imagined that I would be working in, train station, in the train station. <laughs> Not bad for air pollution. Yeah. Or maybe it is. <laughs> so 16 years later, you're still here with the environmental research group who have now shifted to Imperial College London. Do you think you could have ended up at a different place or you've talked about the accidental bit and the, some of it was planned. Would you, do you see yourself being in a different role in a parallel universe? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I never imagined that I'd end up living in London. I always just thought I would live in Edinburgh cause that's, that's where I'm from. Um, and I, I, I saw, I thought sort of thought that I would maybe hopefully eventually be able to get into air pollution and you know I, I was in air pollution a, a job in edinburgh but um i sort of thought maybe i would get into an, like an environmental consultancy or something in, in in edinburgh so um i i mean i think that the funny the funny thing is that you know when i started working at erg i was working next to gary fuller and dave green and sean and and i had seen their names on papers that I had read when I was doing my dissertation. And I was like, oh my God, I'm actually sitting next to them. <laughs> and I still think that, I still think that, I still, 16 years later, I can't quite believe that I actually work, uh, I work here and have worked here for 16 years with these, who I consider, and you know, Frank as well, and like all these, Ian, who I consider luminaries of the air quality world, See, you know, Seriously, and 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 Martin Williams as well. You know, what a loss um, last year. But um, I remember seeing his name on papers from Warren Springer Laboratory when he was there um, as well. So uh, I, yeah, just astonished, absolutely astonished and amazed that I ended up here and that I'm still here. So how how do you manage this work life balance, the stress that comes with it, the academic space? rubbing shoulders with some of the names that you just mentioned, <laughs> having to take your kids back to Edinburgh, Scotland. Do you, what's the balance you find suits you best? I think, I think it's become, I'm sure, I'm sure everyone will say this, but it, it becomes much harder when you've got kids because there, there's a certain, uh, extra level of responsibility and a certain sort of rhythm that comes into daily life and through the year as well with the summer holidays and half terms and stuff that you just have to deal with. You have to. Um, that definitely makes it makes it a bit a bit harder. Um, but I, I guess you know I I, I just I lo I've always wanted to do this and I just I love it so much. Um, that I, if there were, I, th I think if I didn't have the constraint of having kids, I would just work all the, I would just work all the time. So actually it's probably a good thing to have kids that pull me away from, from, from doing it. You know, I guess that's sort of similar though, to a lot of us here where the work could, if you let it just expand and expand and expand and expand, and you can just go on, you know, 
doing it for for hours and hours and hours and forever and ever and you know i'm sure you know all of us here have got a passion for for what we're doing i think you know drawing those boundaries between work and home certainly became harder last year when we were at home all the time and that the boundaries really blur between work and home and, and and certainly i felt um as i'm sure a lot of people did you, you know previously you would finish work and then you'd have a commute home and you'd have a little bit of brain space between work and home but closing the laptop lid and walking into the kitchen to see the kids five seconds later you know is that that's that was really difficult that was quite hard um I think we were sort of adjusting to something new now where we're sort of a bit at home and a bit at work. But I, I, here we are in the office. We are in the office now, all of us here recording this podcast. And I, 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 do, I do appreciate coming into the office and having a, it being a different environment to home um, and having that little bit of sort of separation again of, of saying, right, I'm at work and I'm doing work at work and then I go home and home is home. And I, I, I definitely sort of, I like, I like that aspect of it. So word of advice from Andrew there, um, have kids to take a break from work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, what has been some of the best advice that you've received in your professional development and career? Anything that springs to mind? <laughs> I don't I, I, So the, this is a question that you asked me in, in sort of preparation. And I've been trying really hard to think about whether I have had any career advice. I don't, I don't think I have. Um, but I've been trying to think about what I might give as advice to to people, apart uh, from the have kids to take yeah. a break from work, <laughs> apart from that, um, and I think I think the thing I've been thinking over the last few years is, don't try to be like somebody else. You know, we all have something unique to bring, unique to give, a unique perspective, a unique way of of bringing ideas together, and I think if you if you if you try to be like someone else, they'll you'll go mad, you know. Um, so I think that was that would be the advice that I would give my younger self, probably. Oh, that is that is I think that's really good piece of advice. So for the audience who do not know Andrew, he's very involved in public engagement and air quality communication. Could you please tell us how and why did this become important for you? So that's a really good question. Um, I think it, it, it just sort of felt obvious to me. <laughs> like we had, when I, when I say we, I mean ERG, has this incredible array of air quality information uh, here um, that, that we can access. And I, and I, it has sort of always felt like a duty really to try to communicate that to the public as, 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 as best we can, as best I could certainly. Um, and, and that, that, that sort of has over the years developed into a bit more of a sort of area for me of, 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 of trying to, uh, yeah, establish this as a sort of like air quality communication area. And there are people that, <clears throat> there are people that, uh, sort of specialized in this, but I, it's not, I don't think it's as sort of as established an area on its own as some of, uh, some of the other areas of, of, of air pollution. You know, it takes in, 
quite a few other disciplines. There's quite a lot of sort of um, social science in it. How do people react to stuff? Um, uh, there's sort of demographics in it as well. Who are we reaching with different uh, messages? There's definitely a tech side to it. How do we put together, you know, apps and websites and stuff that I've been concentrating on? Um, uh, but I think, it, I think it's it's a really fascinating area because it brings together so many different, you know, facets into 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 one area, um, and and I think it is a sort of growing area because because of the demands that, because air quality has risen up the political agenda and and the media agenda as well. You know, you know, it, we now see air pollution stories in, in the in the papers regularly mm -hmm. and i and and alongside that there's been quite a rise in 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 camp campaigners as well and charities and ngos taking up air pollution as an issue and i think all of those factors together have has meant that there's been more of a demand from the public for air quality information and and, and uh, so i think it's it's an area which is expanding and and um but I think it's it's even though I've been doing it for quite a long time, it's still an area that I feel I have so much. There is so much to learn, and I have so much to learn in. You mentioned the demand from the public, the multifaceted area, so many disciplines involved, and without getting into the specifics, which we will do shortly, what are some of the most challenging and rewarding aspects of your research when you couple that up with public engagement? That's a really good question. Um, challenging, I think. One, you know, one of the things that I, I very often say when I when I'm at doing interviews or or at events is is the biggest challenge about air pollution these days it's invisible, you know, most of the time, um, and so we have to use other 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 ways of communicating it than 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 than, than what's visual so and and, and and you know and that has led me to collaborate do a lot of collaborations over the years with artists and um in fact in a couple of weeks i'll be doing a event for um imperial uh talking specifically about a collaboration i did with an artist for the recent breathe london project um which was really important to bring that project to life um yeah, so that's sort of the biggest challenge is that it's mostly invisible, and it and it, it it's although there has been a growing demand for and uh, for for people for more air quality information over the last few years, it, it's still I would I would say not something that people think about day to day, um, and so my 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 ambition is for air quality information to become as ubiquitous as weather information, you know, and it, it's becoming more so. There's more sort of weather apps and you know even like the maps app on on the phone now has a little air quality index indicator at the bottom which is which is fantastic um um so that's some of, that's some of the challenges is that it's you know it's mo it's mostly invisible and 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 how, so how do we how do we communicate this this to people i think one of the other challenges that i've i've come across it over the years is people want different levels of air air quality information like some people are just like just just tell me if it's bad or you know i just tell me if it's polluted or not and you know what i need to do whereas some people really want to drill down into it and and you know find out well what 
what you know why is it bad today why was it okay yesterday or is it getting worse or better or what what was my exposure today um and finding a balance between those two uh, can can be difficult you know presenting presenting information pe- to people that is um under you know some can sort of summarize something and is understandable but uh is not but has then sort of sufficient leads into sort of mm-hmm. if people want to dig deeper into it um yeah, some of us are happy with the headlines some of us just want the summary some of us want to read the entire paper absolutely absolutely and and how how you present information to different people and the way that people interpret that um i think is is endlessly fascinating um and and is 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 some of the some of the, the joys and challenges that I've had over the years of creating all these apps and, and websites that, that, that I've been working on. Um, what was the second part? The second part was the most, or some of the rewarding aspects of your research. Rewarding? Um, I think some of the most rewarding stuff I've done has been working with people. Um, the collaborations I've done uh, with artists and theater makers and and um charities over the years um uh have been really rewarding um and then the projects i've done where we've been working with members of the public have been fantastic as well um what uh, charity have you worked with um so i've done done some work with a, a organization called invisible dust um over the years uh, I did a theatre project with Camden, Pe- Camden People's Theatre. Um, I did a, a project with um, uh, a couple, actually a couple of projects with a charity called Hubbub. Um, we did an installation uh, in Covent Garden that people could step into, um, oh, wow. changed colour um, according to pollution data from monitoring stations that we were taking a feed from. Um, and then we did this other uh, project uh, where we gave personal monitors to 10, uh, 10 Londoners um, uh, to wear for, wear for a couple of weeks. Um, and that was a really, that was a really, really rewarding project to work on. Uh, it was a big, it was a big project. It ended up to be, to being a fairly big project, but, but working with those people, and seeing how they talked about their experience of experiences of air, air pollution, uh, you know, looking at their data after they'd had after they'd worn it for a couple of weeks, and we had a couple of roundtable sessions where we got them all together and they spoke to each other. Um, that was, yeah, one of some some of the most memorable sort of stuff I've had from from working over the years. Um, seeing how passionate they became and how. Um, how wearing a, a monitor and getting this data had opened up a completely new view of their life that they they'd not had before. Um, yeah, it was was really great. What did you find that people were most reactive to? Was it the data? Was it being part of something? Yeah, I think I think with the with these there's there's been other projects that we've done like this as well, but I I think. People respond, you know, it it, it it makes intuitive sense, but people respond to their personal data, like their personal, like that, 
that oh yeah that's that's when i went to the shops that's when i was walking mm. the dog mm -hmm. that's when i went taking to taking my daughter to the school it just makes it so much more tangible for them and so much more real um and and so because of that because you know my my sort of realization from that was that is giving people lots sort of like personal data is a real way into communicating air quality and it's much more uh, yeah, much more tangible for people than just a monitoring station that's a couple of miles down, down the road. As important as that monitoring station is, and we, you know, we might go into that later, um, personal information is, is incredibly powerful for, for engagement. Um, and it, and it, it was the experiences from that project which really led into then creating these sort of newest generation of apps that I've been working on, which are giving sort of personal, personal feedback from, from where where users are in the, their location and their exposure. And how do you then deal with the, the GDPR aspect of it, the general data protection regulation, which was in public limelight, I think about two years, three years ago, maybe, mm. where everybody was very off their personal data and it not being out there in the public. Was it challenging to some extent when it came to data like this? Did you find people were perhaps prohibitive so we i i worked with um a phd researcher at imperial called rosie riley who's um under audrey uh, audrey denzel uh, in 2018 2019 um on on this sort of personal tracking app that we created um and she did a a couple of deployments of of getting people uh, groups of people together and giving them the app and and telling them how it was working what it was about and then showing them their data at the end of it and I, I remember um going to a round table that we had uh at the end with a, you know four or five people who'd been running the app for for a couple of weeks and looking at their journeys um and you know we we had made it sort of we had made it pretty clear to them that this was being run by us by imperial and that they're yes we were tracking their data but it was it was being the location data, which is obviously very personal. You know, we could see where they lived, we could see what time they got up, we could, you know, we could see where they went, everything. It's 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 incredibly location data is incredibly rich, and activity data is incredibly rich data. We were kept it in very very secure, so we made sure that they knew at the beginning, you know, what what we were collecting and we, how we were storing it. Um, in this case, and you know, Google's cloud. Um, but I think the the roundtable that we had at the end, and the the engagement, the level of engagement that people had with their data, I th showed me sort of how powerful how powerful this could be. It is a bit of a trade off, you know, where we say to people, if you give us your location, we can give you back your exposure for the day that's the sort of that's the sort of trade-off um assuming in the first instance that they were interested in their personal exposure for the day and yeah hence why they signed up for the was it a study was it uh you said a phd what is the project about yeah well the the rosie's phd um the 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 sort of initial idea well i mean her her phd was much broader it was about sort of engagement and and personal um, it, it with apps and, and, and personal exposure more generally, but the the bit that we that I was working on was creating this app, which was tracking people in the background and 
I mean, in the background of your phone. <laughs> Thank you for the clarification. What was the app called? Uh, it was called Airways. Airways. And so what does the app do? Um, so it does, two, it does two things. Well, yeah, it does quite a few things. But um, when I say background, um, what I mean is uh, apps have two states on your phone. They're either in the foreground, either they're open or they're in the background. And apps, apps have um, very different privileges in, in terms of what they can do, depending on whether they're open in the foreground and you're interacting with them or they're in the background. And background, background location tracking um, using GPS is quite a high privilege uh, task to do for an app um, and, and has only really been sort of possible in terms of like 24, like continual tracking. It's, it's still not, it's still not um, something that Apple or Google like to, you know, and rightly so, you know, generally when you open apps now, they'll say, do you want this app to track you, mm-hmm. you know, when you've got the app open or... It you gives know, you the option. It gives yeah. you the option. And and it used to be that there was an option that said um, always allow. And that is no longer an option. It still is an option. If you go into settings and go into the app and turn it, and you can specifically turn it on to be always allow. But generally, but when the app is installed and the initial choices that are presented to the users are actually, are, are only, um, are, are not, or when open. Um, and I, you know, I get that. I get that because being able to track people in the, in the background, when I say in the background, the app is in the background of the phone. It's not open. It's still tracking you. Um, that is a very powerful, it's a very powerful thing. And it, and it, and it, it's something that could be abused by, by apps. Um, in this case, it was it's really powerful because we can we can give people back feedback on on what their exposure was, modeled exposure, obviously, for the whole for the whole entire day, without them um, having to do anything. Um, and and then you can sort of build up a picture of what someone's exposure is like, you know, day after day, and then they can see if they're changing their routines or changing their behavior is reducing their exposure. So I understand that the app basically tracks the location or it gives the person the location information. Where do you get the information for air pollution from? Is it model data? Is it monitored data? So at the moment, it's a bit of a combination of both. Um, So we have this very detailed model of air pollution in London um, produced by the modeling team here uh, called the... LAEI, the London Atmospheric Emissions Inventory. Um, some people may have seen that sort of quite colourful yellow and red um, pollution map of London. That's the that's the uh, NO2 map. But they also produce PM10, PM2.5 and ozone maps as well. So we have maps for all four pollutants. Um, we are then in, in, in the monitoring team collecting live data from all the monitoring stations which are across London. Um, changing every hour and we use that live data to essentially sort of scale scale the the map up and down to create um what we call our nowcast um and because we know the concentration um of all four pollutants uh in in this model um if we know where you are um then we can give you feedback on 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 what your what your exposure is at at that point um 
the trick, the the more complicated bit bit is is then tracking you through the whole day. You know, like you know, get, getting getting a a lat long location and saying this is what the concentration is at, at that point is is the easy bit. <laughs> the harder bit is to say what were you doing for the last hour? Did you you walk to the shops and then you went for a run and then you to the dog out and um, how do all of those activities? you know, combined together to, to give you your exposure. Um, so that that was a, a big project that I worked on um, with Rosie in, in 2018. Did you say it's called Nowcast? What's, what's yeah, the so the, mo- the model, the, the real-time model that we have of all four pollutants across the whole of London is, is called our Nowcast. And then the app uses the Nowcast to, to work out what your, what your exposure is. So is this data available for all to use? Is it out there? Anybody can use it? Or do they have to get the app? How does it work if one wants to get on it? Um, the Nowcast is is on the London Air website. Um, but the, the mechanics of how we calculate your exposure for different journeys um, and return that is... is it's proprietary information. <laughs> <laughs> Top secret. Yeah. So, is this the only app that you've created? What other apps are you involved with? So the first one was London Air, uh, which is still out there, which has all the monitoring uh, stations on it. Uh, the next one was City Air, which took things on a step further, and that that contains the low pollution routing um algorithm that we have which also uses the nowcast so you plug in your a and b and it can calculate the pollution difference between different routes and give you notifications if it's going to be polluted uh, tomorrow and you can sign up as as different types you got a jogger or a runner or a driver uh, etc um the one that we did after that um was sarajevo air um which was really really fun really cool um we did that for United Nations, um, and uh, I got to go out to Sarajevo for the launch of that for um, World Environment Day in 2019. Um, the one that we did after that was Lusham Air, I think, um, and then Rosie's app. And then the last one that we did was called Canary, um, which uses this concept of um, location tracking um, in a slightly different way. So. For Rosie's app, what we were doing was giving an exposure feedback for every single journey, every discrete journey that you did all through the day. Um, for but for the uh, for the Canary one, which was aimed at outdoor workers, um, we were using location, but we we just give back the average for the hour. And the reason that we do that is because is so that we can compare your exposure to World Health Organization guidelines, um, which are you know generally well for nitrogen dioxide are, are hourly for ozone rolling eight, for particulates is uh, an average over twenty four hours. But um, the hourly building blocks help us to to take a look at how you're doing versus World Health Organization limits. So it's a it's a sort of similar similar concept of, of tracking location, but it's used in the, in a slightly different way. I was just going to ask how these apps are different from each other, but I think you've already told us. Um, in terms of what they do, I mean, everyone is different, right? The audience is vast. How does the app get its message across to the user? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think 
I think that is that is that is what I need to concentrate on next. <laughs> like I feel, I feel like I've sort of built the technology part. I've built the back end, the infrastructure. I've built a couple of apps that use it. Uh, you know, Rosie's app is a, a sort of experimental PhD app. It's not an app that's in production. Canary is an app that's in production. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I, I feel that what I need to do next is work with, um, you know, social scientists and demographers and, um, uh, you know, UI experts to use this technology to make sure that we're sort of presenting this information in, in the most understandable and engaging way that we that we possibly can. And, you know, to go back to what we were talking about you know, earlier, presenting it in a way that is engaging and understandable for people that just want sort of a, a quick glance, but also contains sort of some deeper information than for, for those that want to deep, dig deeper. I think that the, you know, calculating your exposure from a model is, it's, it, it, you know, it, it doesn't know if you're stuck behind a bus, obviously. Um, but the advantage of it, the potential of it is massive scale. You know, if you think about how many people you can sell a personal sensor to, you know, whatever size that market is, the potential for being able to give people feedback and their exposure by just installing an app is massive. It's absolutely massive. And the potential, I think, for using apps as a research platform is massive as well. Um, and I've, I've, I've done that a little bit over the years, um, used City Air uh, and London Air as, as platforms to do research on, to, to communicate, you know, to, to get participants to uh, engage in, in, in the study um, and get feedback from them um, and do sort of, you know, A and B studies and, and, and those types of things. But I, th I think the potential, the potential to do those types of things is, is, is huge. Right now, I'm just picturing somebody stuck in traffic who has the City Air or the Canary app open and the app sends you a notification saying, consider turning your engine off, you might be in a high pollution zone. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, I mean, right now actually, uh, there are buses that have GPS on them and switch into different modes when they come into city centres. Uh, that sort of geo geofencing stuff is 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 done currently. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I I guess I've been sort of fortunate that I've, you know, I've come from a sort of air pollution and technology background, and I've happened to be involved in it during the rise of the smartphone. And the and the incredible power and the that that phones have in them these days, you know, the, the amount of information that they have in them and the sensors that they have in them is, is extraordinary. Um, and and you know the sheer number of people that have phones now means that the, the possibility of the reach is enormous. Um, but to go back to what you said earlier about GDPR, alongside that, power is <laughs> to quote. To quote uh, Peter Parker's dad, um, a great responsibility um, because it's you have the potential of collecting very, very, very personal information about people, um, and so you know I'm very conscious that I have to 
the types of information information that I collect, I have to be very, very careful um, uh, to, to make sure it's secure uh, and, and, and that people know what I'm collecting and why. One of the other apps that you mentioned was the, the Sarajevo one. Mm. So I was just going to ask you, how translational is your backend calculation to other nations? Obviously, in London and in the UK, you've got this network of air pollution models and monitoring stations. Can your calculation model be used internationally? How does it work? Absolutely. Um, yeah, so Natita and the modeling team um, created uh, from scratch um, a model for, for Sarajevo. Um, I then um, ingested is the tech, tech term. I didn't eat it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I pulled it into, into, into my system um, as, as, another, as another model. Um, um, and, and the way the system is architected is that we can add on new cities very easily, or we can expand um, from cities to countries very easily um, as well. Um, and the way it's been architected is that it doesn't matter how big the model is in terms of size, you know, whether, whether it's just a town or, a, or, or whether it's London or a whole country, um, the calculation that we do will take the same length of time, which is milliseconds. Um, so yeah, it's designed it's designed from the from the start to be massively scalable uh, and to be able to take in other countries very easily. So the model would then use measurement data as well. I'm assuming there should be some sort of air pollution monitor in that city, for example. Yeah, that's the harder part, actually, um, is, is, is having sort of good um, monitoring data on the ground to, to be able to produce the, the, live, the live model. Um, but if you interview Annalisa uh, at some point, <laughs> um, she might tell you about some of her work to maybe in the future be able to create uh, live pollution models that don't don't need to, or or at least you know don't don't need as dense a network as we have in London, and can maybe maybe be supplemented with a, a sparser network. So then, how does the calculation model work? I assume there's a black box and some magic occurs in this. It sounds fascinating. Yeah, it was. Um, or can you not talk about it because it's patentable technology? Yeah, we're we're, we're going through a patent process at the moment, actually, on it. Um, uh, that is that's wonderful news to you. Yeah, it's very exciting. Um, yeah, it 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 was creating this creating this engine. I guess it's sort of like a calculation engine. Was the most challenging and rewarding. Well, yeah, one of the most challenging and rewarding sort of technical tech things I've done up to this point. You know, like working with people is a different thing. You know, um, sitting with people around a round table is, is re rewarding in a very different way. Um, I can remember, I remember very distinctly um, <clears throat> when we, and this, this is probably not giving too much away, but when, when we sort of um, moved on to a parallel, parallel processing um, architecture, um, to get the return time down. Uh, I remember distinctly sitting at my kitchen table and <laughs> putting in a post, and Postman, Postman is, um, is an app that you can use to send data to a, to a backend service. 
uh, and it will give you the return time in, in, in milliseconds. And uh, it was a route that went from one side of London to the other, um, which on the previous system had taken about seven seconds to, to come back. Um, and on this new architecture came back in, I think it was something like 300 milliseconds. And <laughs> I, I literally jumped out of my chair. I was so, <laughs> I was so happy. I was so excited. It seems very strange to say that I <laughs> jumped out of my chair because I saw a 300 millisecond return, but it was the result of a lot of thinking and a lot of work. And, and, and I really have to, to give a shout out to, to my longtime collaborator, Mark Willard, that I've, I've worked on with this stuff for, for 10 years now. Um, and uh, yeah, that was a, in terms of tech, that was a real, that was definitely a high point. Without, without prying too much, can you tell us how this technology works? So the yeah, I mean basically the 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 app sends in its sort of raw data, which is location and activity, um, and then we feed that into the model. Um, you know, we know the concentration at, at, at different points right across the city, um, and. Uh, yeah, but and then we have a parallel processing architecture that calculates it very quickly. That's prob probably about as much as I can say at the moment. So how granular is this? Is this level of modeling or the data? Are we talking about a kilometer resolution? So for this for this implementation, um, we calculate a concentration every meter of your journey. And is this across all apps, or do different apps use different granularity? Um, across, yeah, across City Air, Sarajevo Air, Canary, and Rosie's app, they all uh, they all use um, they all use this sort of same backend service that, that that does that calculation. Is there any other technology out there? What are you currently working on? So um, just before I came to do this podcast, um, you might have seen me sitting with Utune. Um, and we are, so that it's really exciting, actually. We are um, collaborating with uh, some people in uh, MIT um, in Boston. Um, uh, those, those guys have been putting sensors onto vehicles and building up a picture of pollution from uh, New York and, and Boston from, from having vehicles uh, traveling around vehicles that do set routes and vehicles that do random routes. Um, um, what we, uh, what Utune and I are working on is seeing whether we can take ventilation rate um, as an additional factor into this calculation system. Because currently the, the calculation system will give you back sort of like the, the, the pollution concentration along your route. But obviously, if you have different activity, if you're running or if you're walking or if you're cycling, you've got different ventilation rates uh, along that route. And the, diff and the different ventilation, like how, how heavily you're breathing will have an effect on how much pollution you're, you're breathing in. So we're looking at whether we, how, how we can uh, take ventilation rate and to improve that calculation um, to give a, a better view of um, of what your exposure was, you know, because you can imagine that, you know, I, I, actually this this was something that that we really um, was a big debate, a big debate between me and Rosie 
<laughs> when we were creating her app was whether to use averages or whether to use dose. So if you just use average, then a five minute walk to the shops, which might have an average, just for the sake of argument, it says it has an NO2 average of 56 micrograms, right? They walk down the street to the shops. Mm-hmm. Um, versus a two hour run around the park which might also have an average of 56 micrograms. But in terms of your pollution exposure, in terms of the dose, right, your two-hour run around the park is a massive difference to your five-minute walk to the shops. Mainly because of the time involved. The time and and the the exertion and the activity, yeah. Um, So so we we sort of debated how how to... communicate this to people like because if if we just show them averages then all of these different types of journeys that you do kind of look a bit similar um so we so we so then when then we got into sort of calculating dose which is you know ventilation rate and time and concentration um but the tricky thing about dose is that we don't have any sort of standards that we can apply to it to say this is good or bad you know with average we can say these are what the world health organization averages are for you know i mean even then it's difficult because a five you we don't have an average for a five minute walk to the shops you know we have an hour average or a daily average or you know even then it's difficult i think we're i think what we're really pushing what we're pushing against now is that the technology has moved on to a point beyond where the sort of where the literature and where the sort of guideline values are we we just don't we're we're sort of roadrunner that's gone off the edge of the cliff and (laughs) we were sort of out in space creating this new technology but we don't yet have a way of communicating to people you know that are you waiting for the guideline to catch up or can you use this research to inform policy then I've spoken to um, Heather uh, Walton here, who who is more involved in that sort of side of things, and um, they, they are sort of you know generally looking at sort of population level, maybe sort of getting down to postcode level. Um, I think getting down to personal level is is a, is a real challenge because everyone is is so different. Um, they are sort of starting to look at that that level though, um, and I, I'm you know I'm sure in time. Um, hopefully there might be some some more sort of personal guidelines that we can apply to this sort of technology. Um, yeah, but at the moment, the sort of the tech is is slightly beyond the... So is there a possibility to link that up with somebody's personal health data, for example? Like you said, you yourself have got asthma, you've already had, you've had it for quite a while. Mm. Would it be possible to have it on a personal level where you inform somebody that this is what you should or should not be doing because the concentration and the pollution outside today is probably too bad yeah i mean we we sort of get we've, we get into that a little bit with the city air app where we have you can choose if you're an at-risk person uh, or if you're um you know a pedestrian or a jogger and, and we we give if it's going to be a polluted day tomorrow, then we give sort of slightly different advice to each of those types of users. Um, I, we haven't sort of got yet down to well, you are a 34-year-old you know, athlete 
six foot two male, and therefore, you know, I, I, I don't know if we'll ever get to a point where we can give sort of highly individualized advice for, 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 for individuals. But I think what, what definitely is possible and what I would, would love to see and what I'm going to sort of try to work on is um, both Google and Apple now have health apps on the phone, which will gather, you know, data from different apps and, and pull it into one place. Um, and so what I'd love to see is, is, is an air pollution section in there, which tells you alongside all of the other sort of bits of health data, what your exposure has been, you know, day to day. So that's another uh, thing that either you can look at or that you can give to your doctor when you, you know, if you go in for, for a visit.